This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. As I shared last week, we're doing a series in the month of April, and I'm actually not stopping on Easter Sunday. I'm just going to keep going uh, to the end of April. And we're doing a series called Paid in Full. And in essence, it is literally a series about the greatest word from the greatest man on the greatest day in all of eternity that we're going to talk about. And we introduced this thought last week. And so I just want to just a quick little review for those that missed last Sunday, um, just so we can all be tracking along the same way. But we landed on this phrase. Jesus actually spoke seven different words or phrases while he was on the cross, and it was actually the sixth phrase, the sixth word that he spoke that we're going to focus on for the entire month of April, and he shares it in John chapter 19, verse 30, and it says this, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, say it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, and it is finished is this Greek word, even though it's three words in English, it's one word in the Greek, and it's literally tetelestai. And it means to be paid in full. And I'm grateful this morning that, that when Jesus declared that, He literally had humanity in mind. That when He declared it, He was thinking of you and I. He wasn't just thinking of the people that were standing at the foot of the cross. He wasn't just thinking about His followers that had fled and ran off on Him. But He was actually thinking about everyone, past, present, and future. That includes us. And this word tetelestai literally means to finish, to end, to complete. To perform that last act act, uh, which completes a process to accomplish and to fulfill. And where we spent a little bit of time last week was focusing on this third part of the definition, which is to bring something to its intended or destined goal. So when he was on that cross 2,000 years ago, he made a divine proclamation that the work of redemption was fully, uh, finally, and forever completed, accomplished, Nothing else has to be done. It's already been done. Pastor and author Tony Evans says this, and I love this. I love this quote. It says, all the funds necessary to pay for our total redemption were put up by Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else was uh, desired or needed payment for. The debt was erased once and for all. The author of Hebrews, where there's still some Bible scholars that still have no idea who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. Sandra and I have actually talked about this even this week. He's like, who wrote the book of Hebrews? I have no idea. And most scholars don't even know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people think it was Paul, because there were certain, uh, certain references to Pauline literature in it. Um, but there's too much of it that doesn't make sense for it to be Paul. So it's always been a mystery who wrote this book. Some people have thought that it must have been a priest or somebody who was once a priest because of the writings about the priesthood and the understanding of the priesthood. But I want you to understand and hear the author of Hebrews this morning in chapter 9, verse 15, and he says this about this whole work of redemption. He says, Through the Spirit, Christ offered Himself as an unblemished sacrifice. This is what they had to do in the Old Testament in order to make sin right, they had to literally kill an unblemished, completely perfect lamb for the sins of the world. This goes on, it says, freeing us 
from all those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable so that we can live all out for God. In some ways, that last phrase is Carla's life, that she understood growing up in church that you know, she tried all these things. She tried to do religion right and it never worked until she met Jesus of all places in that bar and had a revelation of the reality of God. So why can we live all out for God now? We referenced these four things briefly last week, but I just want to mention them quickly so we know where we're tracking. Number one, because our debt of sin has been paid for by Jesus. How many are thankful for that this morning? All right. Second thing is this, because Jesus defeated Satan and rendered him powerless. I'm grateful for that too. We're going to actually talk a little bit more about that today. Because every requirement of the law was satisfied by Jesus on the cross. Another win. And the fourth thing which I love is because Jesus restored humanity to the Father's presence. Wow. Aren't you grateful that we can experience the presence of Father God? today. Thanks, Greg, for your support. (laughs) That we can walk in the presence of God today. It's almost like I got to convince you. Somebody has not been to Tim Hortons or Starbucks on the way to church yet. I got to pray for you. Pray for Holy Spirit Java to flow through you. Right now, in the name of Jesus. Okay, all right. But I want to talk about how this word actually affected those in ancient times. And the understanding of this word in ancient times. And my hope and prayer this morning is for you to understand how it affected them 2,000 years ago, but how it affects us today and how that applies to our life today. And I'm going to just pre-warn you this morning. I'm going to do something a little bit different than I normally do. I'm not, I would never classify Myself as a teacher by any stretch of the imagination, I'm more of a a preacher. I get more excited and all of that stuff. But I'm going to do the best I can this morning to put my teacher hat on. And I'm going to hopefully unpack some things today that uh, my goal is for you to see the significance of this word in your life today. And I'm going to unpack scripture so that you can see how significant it was to those living 2,000 years ago in hopes that you see its significance today. So, In ancient times, who did this affect? Well, the first group of people that this affected and that people, that this group uh, understood this word was was a servant. For servants in ancient culture, they would declare the word tetelestai when reporting to their master that the task that had been given them was fully and completely accomplished. So as an announcement, coming back into the master's presence or the the landlord's presence or the owner's presence, he would literally come in through the door and the first words out of his mouth would be, Tetelestai, I'm done. I'm done. But then I studied this. I looked into this and I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's a cool thought. But Lord, is there anything else that you want me to see about this? And I started looking into these old stories about Greek culture. And I literally stumbled across this story that I thought was so incredible, so inspiring, and it got me so excited. It's a story in secular Greek text. So this isn't even from a biblical perspective, but in secular Greek text, there's a story that spoke of this word in connection to whenever a father would send his son on a mission. Oh, doesn't that sound familiar? 
The son was not to return until he had performed the last act of the mission. Doesn't that sound familiar? And when he finally did, he would announce his return by the word tetelestai. I accomplished your mission, Father. Makes me think, maybe he wasn't just saying that word just for humanity. Maybe he was announcing it to all the heavenly hosts. I've accomplished my Father's mission. Luke 2.49, Jesus' natural parents, Mary and Joseph, are searching frantically to find their boy. He's 12 years of age at the time. They couldn't find him anywhere. And they found him in the temple courts, literally discussing Scripture with the priests and the leaders and the, the, all these wise, wise people who knew the law and who knew the Scriptures. And he, his response to Mary and Joseph when they finally found him was this, Why do you seek me? What would we do if our 12-year-old said that to us right now? I'm like, I'll tell you why I seek you. Get in there. No, I'm just kidding. All right. But he goes, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? When questioned in a similar context by his disciples, John, uh, in the book of John, Jesus responds in John chapter 4, and he says, my food is to do the will of of Him who sent me, and to finish His work, to finish His mission. He goes on in John 17, 4, as He's literally walking into Jerusalem for the final time, and He knew what was ahead of Him. He knew that the cross was coming. He knew it. And He decried and declared, I have glorified You on the earth. I have finished the work which You have given me to do. Jesus fulfilled the role of servant. Mark 10 proves it. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give His life as a ransom for many. He became the servant of all. He understood the Master's mission. He understood it fully, so He lived it out full and to its completeness. Paid in full. Tetelestai. The second group of people that fully understood this word was the priests. Not just in Israel, but in priests in different nations. They understood this word. Priests would examine animals for blemishes before those animals were to be sacrificed. In Israel, they understood that if it was an unblemished lamb, it was good. If it was not, in other words, if it had mistakes, if it had blemishes in it, it wasn't good enough to sacrifice because it wasn't perfect. It had to be perfect in order to atone for people's sins. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. If the lamb was faultless, perfect, and acceptable, the priest would declare, Tetelestai. It's ready to be sacrificed. John 1.29, as John the Baptist literally looks at Jesus, sees Jesus for the first time, it says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first recognition of the prophet that made way for the Messiah, John the Baptist, his first declaration is, wow, there's the Lamb that's going to declare Tetelestai. He understands it. 1 Peter 1, verses 18-19, to Peter's description of this whole concept. 
It says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. In other words, Jesus didn't pay for your salvation because of gold and earthly things. Aren't you glad by that? That you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Verse 19, but the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus was the perfect, unblemished, sinless, faultless Lamb of God. 1 Corinthians 5.7, I don't have it on the screen, but it literally describes Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Jews understood that. Jesus alone fulfilled this priestly covenant. He understood it. Hebrews chapter 4.15, and it says, the high priest, this high priest, talking about Jesus of ours, understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. That's why we can go to him. He understands what we've been through and he understands what we're going through. But in all of that, he didn't make a mistake. He didn't sin. Why? Because he was, the, he was called to be and was always going to be the sacrificial lamb of God. The very person at the center of the plan of redemption of mankind who would one day declare... Before his death, tetelestai, it is finished, it is done, it is complete. It doesn't have to be any more complete, it is already done. How many are grateful for that this morning? The third group of people that understood this word were actually merchants. And the ancient times, there was something that would often be described as a promissory note, and it was a note of promise, it's like an IOU. (laughs) It's probably the best way to describe it. And the one holding the note uh, would often write the word tetelestai across the beginning or the top of the note whenever the promise was redeemed. So merchants would understand this. They've actually, and Sandra references at the end of the service last week, that they've actually found in archaeological digs old papers and old uh, scrolls. And on those scrolls, whether it was a property deed or whether it was a promissory note or whether it was literally a certificate of debt, you would see the word over top of it, tetelestai. This was true even in Israel because we find it in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 2 in the Living Bible. It says, Every creditor shall write paid in full on any promissory note he holds against a fellow Israelite. For the Lord has released everyone from his obligation. Aren't you grateful this morning that the Lord has released you from the debt that you have to pay? And he has placed that word, tetelestai, right on top of your List of sins. It's taken. It's paid for. It's done. When Christ gave Himself on the cross, He took our sin debt and marked it once and for all, paid in full. For those that have kind of read the Old Testament compared to the New Testament, one of the constant questions I get as a pastor is, can you help me to understand the Old Testament? And my response as quickly as anything is, Talk to Sandra. And if that doesn't work, talk to Ray. And if that doesn't work, pray. Just pray, pray. Now, one of the things that I kind of hope, uh, this is a little private conversation Sandra and I have often. One of the things that we talk about is I, we want to, over time, help create in our church a love and appreciation for the Old Testament. Because most people avoid it. (laughs) 
How many have ever done a Bible reading plan and they go, hey, a New Testament Bible reading plan, I'll do that one. I don't know if I want to do the Old Testament. You usually get to Leviticus and you go, oh. And then you get like halfway through Leviticus and you're like, oh. Then you get to around verse 19, 20, 21, you're like, oh. And then you're like, Lord, I just feel like you're calling me right now to read the book of John again. John is such a safe book to I love John, and when I'm done that, I'll go to 1 John, and then 2 John, 3 John. Any other books that John wrote? Revelation. Oh, Lord, I'm going to avoid that one, though. I'm not going to read that one, Lord. There's too many movies made about that. Okay. But you have to understand that this Old Testament covenant was based upon a sacrificial system that had weaknesses. In other words, it could never take away sin. It could only cover it. How many have ever tried to cover up your sin? How many have ever had the cover-up go wrong? And then it's all over Facebook. (laughs) Kidding. All right. All right. But I want you to see what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and then I'm going to literally go full teacher mode on you, okay? Hebrews 10, 5-7. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. It's referencing the Old Testament sacrificial system. There was burnt offerings, sin offerings, grain offerings, and then two others, which I always forget the name of them, but there's five. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. I have come to accomplish the mission of redemption so that the Old Testament sacrificial system can be done away with once and for all. So I want to prove to you this morning that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament tabernacle of Moses. Perfectly. Because the tabernacle represented the sacrificial system in the way that the people of Israel could commune with God. So it's significant. We can't just ignore it. We can't just read it as part of history and go, oh, that's interesting. They got a bunch of bowls and they got a a candelabra and they got a, oh, that's nice. They must have had a wedding in there. I don't know, but you know, you, you can't look at it that way. You have to look at it as it is, but then my hope this morning is to help you see how Jesus fulfilled every single part of the Old Testament tabernacle. In essence, I'm going to prove that Jesus actually became the tabernacle of God. You ready? All right. So James is going to put up a picture up behind me. You guys can track along with this. I'm going to do my best to explain it. So the Old Testament tabernacle literally had one entrance, which is represented by this kind of rectangular shape here on the far left side. Interestingly enough, and I want you to be tracking along with me as I describe it, that with the tabernacle of Moses, there was only one doorway in to the tabernacle. There was not multiple doors in. There was not a side door. There was not a back door. There was only a front door. There was only one door. Keep that in mind. The first thing that you would come to when you came through the doors is you would see this giant altar. And it's literally in the Old Testament called the brazen altar. It's description of kind of what it's made from. But this is literally the altar where animals were killed for people's sins. 
Your sins literally had to be cleansed by blood. How many know from the medical community that everything we need to know about you can be found in your blood system? Your blood tells, you, it tells the doctor everything they need to know about who you are, what's going on, what's going right, what's going wrong, right? Somehow, there's significance in this sacrificial system. The next thing that you're going to see that's off to the side of the altar is what's called the brazen laver. This is where you would wash after you performed the sacrifices. There would literally just be this laver filled with water that you would wash yourself in in order to be cleansed and sanctified. And what's interesting about this whole dynamic with the tabernacle is that you could never get beyond the brazen laver until you were fully cleansed. You had to be cleansed in order to take the next step. So before you get into the next kind of level of the tabernacle, you'll see here that there's another kind of rectangle just past to the right of the brazen laver that is the opening into the inner courts or what they actually called the tabernacle. Okay? And what was interesting is it was this beautiful veil that was made of blue and scarlet and purple and it was, it was beautiful, it was gorgeous. But once you go through that veil, once you go through that curtains, you would literally be in this room that was lined with gold. And it was breathtaking. And when you got into this room, this golden room was lit up by a golden lampstand. And the, and the literal command of God was to never let the fires of that golden lampstand go out ever. It was to be burned continually. That was the, literally the description and the commandment of God to the people of Israel. That was the commandment to the priests to make sure that the golden lampstand was to burn continually. When you get past that table of showbread, you're going to see behind it is, or sorry, the golden lampstand, you're going to see behind it is the table of showbread. What was interesting, it was 12 loaves of bread representing what? The 12 tribes of Israel. New Testament, you can look at it, it represents the 12 apostles. Interesting. They were stacked in two piles representing fellowship with God. That's what the bread represented. It represented fellowship or communion with God. The moment you get past that, you come to what the Bible describes as the altar of incense. The closer you get to the throne room or the presence of God, the very presence of God is this altar of incense. Well, what was it used for? Prayer. It was what the high priests would do. They would pray literally for those that they would represent, being the nation of Israel. And then when you came through the second veil, you're in this room called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. So we got everyone up to speed. We're good. Okay. If you were privileged to be the high priest, you were able to go into this room once a year. You would go behind the second veil to the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. The ark, interestingly enough, I actually did this in my one-on-one class a couple weeks ago. The ark literally had two cherubim or two angels literally up over top of the cover of the ark, literally hovering. Honey, if you want to come up here, we're, gonna, you can, we're just going to act it out here. So picture the rectangular ark of the covenant, and these two cherubims were covering it just like this. They were up over top. What were they doing? They were protecting the presence of God. That's what their role was. But inside the ark was two tablets of stone where the law of God was written on it. 
okay? And the priests went in there once a year, and his job, this is going to sound gross, but it's the job of the priest. He would take blood from the sacrifice, or the atoning sacrifice, and he would literally put it over the mercy seat, which was between the two cherubim, which represented where the throne of God was. That's what they believed was the throne of God, was this mercy seat. And that's literally what the priest would do once a year. And tradition kind of took off that sometimes uh, the sacrifice was not godly, was not holy, was not whatever, and the high priest would die. So they actually started a tradition where they would tie a rope around his waist, and, and if they heard a thump, they'd pull the guy out. So there was an anticipation about making sure the high priest would come back out from the Holy of Holies, okay? I want you to just understand a couple of ancient uh, historical details here. If you ever saw the throne room of any ancient king, beside the throne, directly beside it, sometimes even underneath, would be a very special box. Within that box would be the scrolls or the laws of their people so that the king could judge rightly based upon the laws. The laws would be sitting right there. Interestingly enough, God himself sits on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies and below him is the law of God that he wrote with his finger to be able to judge his people rightly. That was the whole purpose behind that. So when the priest would go in there and apply the blood, if he returned, they know that the sacrifice was acceptable, that it was finished, that it was complete, it was tetelestai. That's what was important. And they would obviously wait there in anticipation, waiting for this moment to happen. But I want to show you, and I'm going to put up another picture, I'm going to show you how Jesus perfectly fulfills the tabernacle of Moses as the sacrificial lamb. And this is significant because there's nothing else he has to do. You have to understand that. There's nothing else he has to do. All right. So, we got the next one up. Jesus says the tabernacle. You guys will see in the very first part, there's only one way in. Well, Jesus proclaimed in John chapter 14 that he is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the Father, the Father's presence that's in the Holy of Holies under the, on the mercy seat, without going through me. John 10, he says, I'm the door. If you don't go through me, you can't see the Father's presence. So he fulfills it perfectly. The brazen altar, the atoning sacrifice. Jesus became the atoning sacrifice. We've already been talking about these verses. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus himself fulfilled the brazen altar. And here's where it gets really, really cool. To the side of the brazen altar, off the side of the brazen altar, is this brazen labor. Where water flowed. (laughs) This is where it gets cool. When Jesus died, they took a spear and they pierced his side where water flowed. And the description of Jesus' throne in Revelation 22 is as he's on his throne, water comes out from the side of the throne and nourishes the nations. Okay, that's cool. He's fulfilling perfectly the brazen labor. The altar represents that cleansing or that sanctifying, and the laver represents that purifying, that cleansing of water. Jesus himself described to his followers that he was the living water. 
And an entire community came to Christ that day because of one conversation about living water with a Samaritan woman. So what happens next? Well, in order to get into the inner courts, a veil had to be torn in two. His body broke. His body broke. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22, it says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. Interesting. And having a high priest over the house of God, which that inner court was called the house of God or the tabernacle. Okay? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hello. That just tied in the process from the brazen laver right into, through the courts, into the Holy of Holies, into the inner courts. I want to share with you a verse that I have never seen before until a month ago, and I've never understood it. And John, or uh, James, thankfully, James uh, found me this verse, and he's got it there for me. It's not in my notes, but we're going to read this. John chapter 1, verse 14. And it says, And the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I looked into this, and I'm going to tell you something that I found got me so excited, I was bouncing off my chair this week. The Greek word directly translated for dwelt is tabernacle. So it literally is saying... Jesus, the Word, came to earth and tabernacled amongst us so that we can experience the real tabernacle of the Father, the Holy of Holies. So the word used was not to describe this location, like he dwelt, he was locating right here. It was actually a word to describe to the people of Israel, Jesus is the Messiah who is tabernacling with you. And he's opening the veil because of his own body being broken so that you could come to the Father's presence. Wow, that's pretty cool. Golden lampstand, pretty simple. Jesus is the light of the world. The table of showbread. Jesus described himself to a a group of followers one day that he was the bread of life and described it using the context of the bread from heaven in the Old Testament and basically said, I'm the new bread from heaven for the new covenant. Okay, interesting. And here's where it gets really cool. Ark of the Covenant. Anchored behind the veil. Hebrews 6 literally describes this, this concept that Jesus is the anchor to the presence of God. Hmm. He's the anchor to the mercy seat. Romans 3 actually describes Jesus himself as the mercy seat of God. That's cool. He's the one covering our sins. He's the one judging us in righteousness because he made atonement. He sacrificed for us. The first veil that was torn 2,000 years ago gave us access to ministry in the church. But there's a second veil being torn when Jesus returns to the earth and takes his church back with him. Interesting symbolism. (laughs) 
Very interesting. Christ has paid the full price. I'm going to land here on our fourth thought. The fourth group of people that understood this word. They were prisoners. Prisoners understood this word. As I was researching, I came across this story that described this scene perfectly. And so I'm just going to explain it to you guys this morning. It says, when a, when a Roman citizen was convicted of a crime and he was thrown into prison, they would literally create a sheet on, uh, on paper of the day that would literally list his crimes and they would literally put it on either the door of the jail or somehow kind of put it just outside where his jail cell was. And every time someone would walk past there, they would literally see the full list of all of the things that he was convicted of that he was rightly judged for. How many are grateful that we don't have that list that everyone gets to look at? All right, okay. But when the prisoner had served their full and complete sentence and they were released from prison, the certificate that was originally a certificate of criminality was taken down, was taken to the judge, and the judge would write over top of the list of sins, tetelestai. That's what was written. So any time that someone would come to him and try to remind him of the list of things he would do or has done, he would literally pull out this scroll and show him the judge's signature, tetelestai. I think we need to be doing a little more of that with Satan. Every time he accuses, every time he reminds you, I don't know how well that works in parenting, but you know... I'm sure that there's a way that we can, you know, get through that. But the point is, is that they understood this word. So this individual could rest in safety and security, knowing that that word, tetelestai, guaranteed their liberty and their deliverance. Okay? This person would never, ever in their life be a victim of double jeopardy because they could never be reminded of what they did wrong because it had already been paid for. This is, if I'm going to be really, really honest today, this, this is sometimes where we as the church get, get it wrong. We love to remind each other of how we've messed up in the past, don't we? So if someone in the church does that, you go. You have my permission. Go right ahead. <laughs> Just don't do it with an attitude. We're not going to do that. There's no attitude, none of that. Just like, Jesus is good, and then he can start singing kumbaya. You can do whatever you got to do. So when Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, on the cross, he understood in that moment that whoever received him received a certificate of debt with the inscription of Tetelestai written on top of it in his blood. And he's now passed us that scroll. That's what we have in our hands. It indicated that every crime, every mistake, every sin, every, everything that you'd love to have a do-over on, past, present, and future, 
against God and against others has been paid for in full. Erwin Lutzer said this about it. He says, on the cross, the justice of God was fully satisfied when our heavenly substitute paid the great price of ransom. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, we can stand with confidence despite the thunder of the law and the lightning flash of justice, for we are safe beneath the cross. He paid the very last cent of the wages of our sin. I want to I come in for a closing with something, and this is something else that I've just been landing on that's been so cool. And I hope that I say this right. Because it's just been such a significant understanding for me this past week. I've never seen something before. Look at how Paul describes this whole thing in the book of Coloss to the Colossians here. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, I'm, I'm going to read the NLT ver, uh, first, then I'm going to go right down into the New King James because there's a, a word in the New King James that's actually the most accurate word that I want to use. It says in the NLT, it says, He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. How many are grateful? And in this way, verse 15, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I want you to remember this phrase, shame them publicly, because there's significant meaning behind that. In the New King James, it says, having wiped out the handwritten requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And here's the key, verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And I want you to understand the word triumph. If, you've got your, if you're taking notes, highlight the word triumph. When you look it up in the original language that the Bible was written in, it actually references a Roman uh, culture, uh, cultural norm about warfare. And it actually describes it perfectly. So whenever a Roman general would defeat the enemy in a battle. And he did this mighty victory, and there was this mighty, mighty roar about this Roman general. The general would be paraded in to Rome, and behind him would be the the enemies that he had victory over, and they would be naked and chained. That's what the Romans did. And once you're down, they want to make sure you feel real down. Right? So not only would they had this great victory over their enemy, but they would literally parade the people that lost the the battle behind them, naked and chained. Hmm. Yet this is the word that Paul is strategically using to describe the triumph of Jesus over the devil. All right. As soon as we read that verse, the first thought that comes to mind, if you're tracking the way I normally do, is you're like, yeah, Jesus is like the Roman general and like Satan is like behind him with all his, you know, demons and they're all naked and chained and yeah, God's awesome. How many have ever had that picture? How many wish that were true? How many love when Jesus beats the enemy? And then I stumbled across a verse. That has forever wrecked me. 2 Corinthians 2.14. It's the same author. It's Paul, the apostle, writing to a different church. A church at Corinth, which was a merchant city that understood Tetelestai. Interesting. He goes like this, verse 14. But thanks be to God... 
who always leads us in triumph, same word as Colossians 2, in Christ, and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Triumph in Christ. Triumph is the exact same word used from Colossians chapter 2, verses 15. What's he trying to say? First question I asked myself was, well, who is triumphing then? And the first response that most of us will have is, well, it's us, right? Nope. God is the one, it says here, that's leading the triumph. The Father. Therefore, the Father is the Roman general. But guess who's behind him? Jesus. Jesus was naked and chained with our sin. Naked on the cross. And he took the role, not of authority, but of humility. To be the sacrifice for humanity. Once for all. So that it never has to be done or dealt with ever again. So what's the key? We have to be in Christ. It says triumph in Christ. The problem is, Christ's plan for overcoming the the enemy is very different than what we think it is. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God, be... Oh, if you want to get ahead, serve. Who came up with these rules? Jesus. Why? Because it's not about you. It's always been about Him. And it can be about Him because He chose to be naked and chained on your behalf. Hebrews 10.12 says this, and I love it, and I'm coming in for a close here. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at the Father's right hand. He submitted to the Father's mission on earth that looked naked and chained. And because he fully submitted to the earthly mission of the Father, the heavenly mission is honor beside the Father. If you want to follow Christ, the Bible says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Where's he leading? He's leading a procession of naked and chained people following God the Father on their way to victory. Naked represents, it's not about us. The chains represent what Christ has paid for us. Tetelestai. It's paid in full. Romans 8, 29 and 30, it says this. I love this verse. 
I'm going to read it from the Message Bible. So this is not, uh, just if you're new to church, this is not talking about getting MSG from Chinese restaurants. I just want to clarify. This is not about MSG. This is about the Message Bible version. Okay. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity, naked and chained behind the father. He stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. Redeemed. Forgiven. Overcomer. Got it? After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them Till the end, gloriously completing, tetelestai, what he begun. So say after me, I'm under construction. I haven't arrived. That's not where we're at. We haven't arrived. But God's heart is this verse for your life. That's his heart. Some of you this morning may feel like a servant that has never understood or even knows what it feels like to be a son or a daughter. Some of you this morning are a priest that in those olden days they understood what to do, but they didn't understand how to be. Maybe that's a description of where you're at in your walk with God. Some of you are like the merchant who knows how to hold people to a promise, but have never truly experienced the promises of God in your own life. And maybe you're here today because you're simply a prisoner to your own sin. But you have to understand today, Jesus came 2,000 years ago to set the servant, the priest, the merchant, and the prisoner free. He's just looking for a response. And the only thing he wants you to do this morning is to courageously take the list of sins that have been put on your prison cell And hold it up to Jesus so that he can stamp it once and for all. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.